That smooth Christian jazz you're hearing means you've tuned in to Same Old Song, the lectionary podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm your co-host, Aaron Zimmerman. I'll be joined by Jacob Smith as each week we break down the lectionary readings for the upcoming Sunday to give you something to think about, and if you're a preacher, to give you something to preach about, and no matter who you are, to give you a connection to the never-changing message of God's grace for actual people like you. Unzip that monogrammed faux leather Bible carrying case and cover, pull up a chair, and let's dig in. Well, we're back. We are back. The Backstreet Boys are back. And uh, this is um, a doozy of a same old song. So before we jump into it, though, um, how are you, uh, Aaron? Uh... Today's my birthday, and I've received a lot of uh, very calorically dense foods today. Amazing. Uh, which is which is wonderful. I had a cookie today I've never had before. It's a churro cookie. Uh, Ooh. It's good. It's good. Yeah, I'm doing right. How about you? How are you in Manhattan? I'm doing well. If you ever doubt, listeners, that Jake is actually New York, all you have to do is count the number of sirens and <laughs> car horns that you hear on this podcast. I'm doing great. You know what I had today for lunch? It was delicious. Um, we ate Indian food, and I had a dish called chili salmon, and it was um, it was next to perfect. It was mm. that good, and well, locale. I feel well, um, you know I'm on that locale kick right now. So your righteousness surpasses mine and the Pharisees. levels are high. I only had half a piece of naan, which I'm really impressed with. Normally, I'll consume like you know five or six pieces of naan, and then go home and put on some elastic pants. But uh, today, you know. <laughs> We're doing well. So anyway. Today, you're righteous in the world's eyes, which, you know, food is like the only moral category that exists anymore. And if anything happens to me, today also my complaint is bitter, for his hand is heavy despite my groaning. So anyway, but uh, we have have some interesting readings today. Happy birthday, Aaron. Thanks, man. You don't look a day over uh, 42. So anyway. um, Well, I just turned 43, so there you go. So, but uh, today's readings are Job 23, verses 1 through 9, 16 through 17. And then we jump into Hebrews, chapter 4, verses 12 through 16. God bless those of you who have crafted a sermon series on either Job or Hebrews. And then finally, we wrap it up with Mark, chapter 10, verses 17 to 31. But diving right in here to Job, we've moved from chapter chapter uh, 1, uh, and uh, where, um, you know, the devil goes up to heaven. He was looking for a soul to steal. He doesn't go and, down to Georgia. Uh, no, he went up to heaven and he was looking for a soul to steal. And Job seems to be the one. And so far, you know, we've moved from, if you will, the prologue to a conversation that Job has been having with some of his friends. And uh, today is no different. Job is uh, finishing basically a conversation that he's been having with his friend uh, Eliphaz. And so, and Eliphaz has accused Job of surely doing something wrong. And this is why God is punishing you. So, if you just make your confession, well then, um, you know, all of this punishment will stop. It's kind of, you know, one of those things. If you just do this, then. And it's so, like being and, um, in East Berlin in like 1973, or <laughs> yeah. if you've seen, uh, um, 
What's that movie with Benedict Cumberbatch where the courier replays the British spy? Oh, that's right. And he yeah. gets arrested and like, we know you did something. Uh, just confess, just sign this paper to make it all go away, which happens still all over the world, by the way, mm-hmm. lots of places. Even in the uh, United States. So even in the United States. And that's what they've been saying uh, here. Just, just we know you must have done something bad, so just get it off your chest and everything will be fine. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so what we have today in our reading, Job 23, verses 1 through 9, 16 to 17, is essentially uh, Job's response. And, uh, and Job's response in its essence is going back to chapter one where he's declared a man who's righteous. He's like, I haven't done anything wrong, but I sure would like to figure it out. Maybe I have, maybe I haven't. I don't think I've done anything wrong, but I definitely would love to figure that out. Where do I go and look? This is a little bit like when you're in an argument with your spouse and you feel like you've been unjustly accused. Not me. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. This doesn't happen to clergy, obviously, but... We're talking about your spouse. Right. And then people in your congregation, they they will be able to relate to this. And you begin to think of all these reasons why you don't deserve your spouse's wrath and anger. Mm. Uh, Everything you did was justified. You're totally cool. You You have reasons and all that. You didn't do anything wrong. And so... If, if only you could make him or her listen, they would understand. And Job has a little bit of this thing, like, bad things are happening to me. I'm covered in sores, and uh, I've lost all, everybody that's near and dear to me. And if I could just go to God and explain to him, because I haven't done anything wrong, if I could just explain, he would totally understand, mm. um, and I would be acquitted forever by my judge. And I think, you know, this is one of those passages, one, if you preach on it, you do have to do some of the background work and explain what's going on with Job and he's been having these arguments. and But I think what I would say about this is that both Job and his friends share a similar perspective in that they all see God primarily as a judge. And actually, I mean, Job calls him a judge uh, in mm-hmm. uh, verse 7. And, and I should be acquitted forever by my judge, yep. Yeah, and, and so... Job's friends see God as a judge, so Job must have done something wrong. Job sees God as a judge. He knows he didn't do anything wrong, so what gives? And that's why he says he can't find God. But I think, um, you know, he says, I, I look left, I look right, I can't see him. And the reason he can't see him, I think what this passage is pointing towards, is the fact that God is profoundly most revealed, not as a judge, but as the one who is judged in our place, Jesus Christ. He's not... God on the judge's seat, he's God on the cross, which means that the moral categories that we have for God as being in the universe, like God is the one who gives good things to good people and bad things to those horrible people that deserve it, God is, that's that's a very kind of cartoony, childlike version of God, and that's not what we see in the, in the throughout the scriptures. God is always picking knuckleheads like Moses and St. Paul uh, to be leaders in the church. Or people like Esther, as we talked about a few weeks ago, who, you know, barely knew whether she was Persian or Jewish and didn't know her Torah and didn't keep the law and all that. So, God is always picking people that don't fit the right moral categories. People Mm. like Samson. That guy was the worst. Anyways, King David, also terrible. He's always picking people who are the worst because God is a God of grace to sinners and a God who himself is treated as a sinner, who 
is baptized with the sinners in the River Jordan, who is crucified with sinners on a Roman cross. So if you want to find God, you don't look primarily for a judge. You look for the condemned. You look yeah. for the one who's been convicted and tried and uh, executed. Uh, and so, because God is not the one who inflicts suffering on bad people, God is the one who actually suffers himself. Yeah. And so and it's, I, yeah. Actually, you know, we were talking about this before, um, before the episode of how, like, kind of what a difficult passage this would be to preach, but it's actually, um, it's actually, this is where a lot of your people are at in their congregation, especially those who have been um, uh, seeped and marinated in American Christianity. Uh, where it's like this Pelagian two-way street. I do my part and God does his. And, you know, and there's lots of people looking for God all over the place. They're looking for him at the golf course. They're looking for him at, you know, in the woods or in a sunset or wherever it may be. And when the spit actually hits the shan and, uh, you know, and life gets hard, well, then their cry, and believe me, uh, when you get through all of the veneer and the smiles, there are a lot of people probably in your congregation who are saying along with Job towards the end, because here's where he's losing his confidence, is where he says, God has made my heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me. If only I could vanish in darkness and thick darkness would cover my face. See, so many people are looking for God. And, uh, and, uh, and so, and that's where we come up with the idea, good things happen to good people. But, you know, as Christians, and where you need to preach on this passage is that um, uh, God is found uh, primarily when he speaks. And uh, what, where he speaks clearly is from the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And when you begin to realize that, boy, I have contributed to that, uh, well, that's what you begin to learn, and that you, you begin to notice God's answer in both law and gospel. And then you begin to see, oh man, what great things he's actually given me as the judge. He's taken my place in the judgment and has forgiven me all of my sins. And therefore, people, when they understand the gospel and it's been preached to them, well, the Holy Spirit creates the endurance and the ability to, uh, with patience and grace, uh, see through the boils and the scarcity of life, whatever they happen to be facing. Yeah, and I, th I think there's definitely kind of a theology of the cross. Um, yeah, for sure. Arrow here, or at least pointing us to that, because Job is a theologian of glory. He thinks that um, God is found in bright, shiny places and not in dark places. And hmm. um, but again, this is this is. This book asks a really deep question about God and suffering and how can those two things exist in the same place. And ultimately, the book, as we'll find out, does not give you a neat and tidy answer for it, but the whole of Scripture ultimately points to Christ. And so, where is God in suffering? Well, He is suffering for you and for us. Um, uh, and if Job, ironically here, and we see this through New Testament eyes, when he wants to vanish in darkness and that darkness would cover his face, that darkness is where Christ dwells. So he doesn't maybe realize yes. it, but he's headed. He's headed closer to that. So That's I think there's good. something. There's something to say. Like there's a spiritual perspective, as you call American Christianity, that was exemplified by Reese Witherspoon in the movie Election, which is a movie that came out in the '90s about a high school student council election. And Reese Witherspoon was the top of her class, go-getter, always won every election, and she has this attitude that she prays the night before of the election, and she prays 
with this attitude like god you and i both know we deserve this and i'm the best candidate so you know tomorrow's just a formality and we both know i'll get it and thank you for making me so awesome and there's people that have this attitude about god that way but if you go through life like that you will ultimately very be very disappointed because ultimately you'll see good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people including yourself and we need a god who is bigger than that and a god who can be found in the darkness and who enters that darkness on our behalf which is what we have in jesus christ so there's a lot to unpack but if you can do it with this job text i think it's really 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 powerful and you can invite your congregation into seeing god as not someone who rewards the good and punishes the bad um but a god who gets down from the judge's throne and gets onto the cross for them and that's where he's found and where they can find him awesome well, now so, we come to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter four, verses 12 through 16. Which, you know, last week as we entered Hebrews, it was about the fact that Jesus is God, uh, more than he's not just an angel in disguise as a man. He's, uh, you know, the whole question of the book of Hebrews is who is Jesus? And um, in the beginning of this passage, verse 12 of chapter four is talking about <laughs> Jesus, the word of God. Um and remember, a word of God here is not, it doesn't mean the Bible, at least not like we think about it, because the New Testament doesn't exist yet. Um, I think you can say that word of God for them means the scriptures, but it also means just the word of God, uh, the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, and uh, But the eternal word of God, the one that spoke creation into being, all of that. And here, uh, the author says this, this word of God acts as a judge, dividing soul from spirit, joints to marrow, judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So, it gets to the Don Henley heart of the matter. Uh, and this is the kind of idea we express in the Colic for Purity at the beginning of the Episcopal uh, service of communion. Almighty God, to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid. Which is a bit terrifying. All your secrets are coming out of the, the woodwork. Um, if you're listening to the Mark Driscoll podcast on Christianity Today, you know that they have this whole section about his premarital counseling as well as his counseling about getting rid of demonic footholds in your life. And in both situations, uh, people in the congregation were asked to confess their deepest, darkest, most secret, terrible sin, the worst thing they'd ever done like Chunk in Goonies when he has his hand poised over the blender by the Fratellis. Um, or uh, when Flanders made his uh, big <laughs> confession. Do you remember that one? Well, one of them, he's like, I have to confess I have an, like an overweening sense of civic pride. He feels really bad about that. <laughs> the other was, uh, he was like, well, gosh darn it, sometimes I just highlight Bible verses in my wife's Bible instead of mine. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Which those, as again, you and I as preachers, those would be the kinds of sins we would confess. But some people That's actually right. have really bad things, Jake. I know you're surprised to hear that. Um, but yeah, so so we get this idea of God at the beginning of this Hebrews passage that kind of aligns with the Job thing. Like, God is this judge and you should be terrified. Uh, and he kind of lays it on pretty thick. No creatures hidden, all are naked and laid bare and we have to render an account. But, aha, here's the plot twist where the writer from Hebrews, who does this a lot, will kind of sort of scares you like bad cop and then it's, it's suddenly good cop. And we realize that actually, um, like Job will find out, this God is not, uh, does not stay up on the judge's throne, but comes down and we, he actually has, it's a throne of grace. And mm -hmm. we have this great high priest who actually 
um, has entered into our weakness yeah. and uh, has lived just like yeah. a human being, uh, though without sin. Uh, but but because of the cross, the death and resurrection of Christ, we can approach this throne of grace, which says yeah. we can receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need, which that will preach. That's right. And, you know, and that's that's absolutely right. This is the crescendo, basically, of the book of Hebrews. You know, uh, um, one of the one of the high points, the high, the great high peaks of this epistle, or this sermon, uh, and what he has been, um, the context of this, and where it makes sense. Like, don't talk about this, like you said, you, you know, just focusing in on me and my Bible. You know what I mean? Mm. In the Bible, so like that's not, this is about Jesus, because uh, earlier in chapter four, he's talked about Joshua leading the people into the land, and so here we go, and then you begin to understand what Jesus talks about when he says, "All the law and the prophets point unto me," because Moses can't get them into the promised land, but Yeshua, Joshua, gets them there. But this is just a type and a shadow of the rest that is to come, and that's his whole point he's making here, and that even these people fell away because they. They, they didn't quite understand the promise. They weren't given it. And so, um, and so in verse 11, he says, strive to enter into that rest, a.k.a. cling to these, this word and sacrament, because the, the, the temptation was to go back to temple worship that was really earthy and filled with a lot of noise and blood and smells. And so, and he's like, no, 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 strive to stay in that rest, a.k.a. through the preached word and this bread and wine. And uh, he says, because this image of Jesus that has been given, this is the fulfillment. This word of God is living and active, and it's able to divide us and like cut all the crap away from our life, all of our doubts, all of these things, and really uh, uh, has the power to make us right with God. This is what he's talking about here. And so, and how has it made us right? Because, and he uses this high priest imagery. Remember from last week, the high priest that's not ashamed of us in any way. But this high priest has actually um, not only gone into the promised land, but he's passed through uh, the fulfillment of it by passing through the heavens. And so, we hold fast to that confession. And, um, and this is the thing, too. This isn't your moment to talk about how now you can relate to God in every way. A lot of people want to preach, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness. Um, you know, and you'll often hear, like, so you can relate to God in every way. No, 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 no. You can't relate to Jesus in every way. Um, but you know now that God can relate to you in every way. And uh, there is nothing that you are going through that God cannot relate to. Um, and uh, and uh, has not and does not understand and sympathize with. I mean, I think this is, you know, grace sometimes becomes an abstraction, um, but when you see it in the personal work of Jesus as our high priest, you see a priest who has empathy. You know, I think about Jesus before Lazarus weeping over his friend's death. You know what I mean? It, you know, uh, this, is, this is gritty, and because this is a God who is related to us in the grittiness, we can approach the throne of grace with boldness because he knows exactly where we're at. You don't know where he, you may not know emotionally where he's at. This is why the veil's torn from the top to the bottom, because God comes to us. Yeah. I think, you know, it's always good preachers to remember that you don't want people leaving your church having learned a lesson about how to live better lives. Yes. The main thing you want your listeners to leave with is an understanding of God that is accurate. Now, mm. obviously, that's impossible because we're finite and God is infinite. But I just we get it. Oh man, everybody 
Jake and me included, we all uh, kind of by default have this view of God as being this divine accountant who's counting bad deeds and counting good deeds and is going to weigh them. I mean, just every relationship you have works that way almost always. Um, a scale of rewards and punishment based on your behavior. And um, as we were joking earlier about Jake's uh, amazing willpower about not having to eat the whole piece of naan and how he, you know, uh, ate a piece of salmon. Good for you, Jake. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, like we're always judging ourselves. We always think of the world in those terms, um, checking our own performance, how we're doing, how's our report card. And every reading for this Sunday, and frankly, the whole message of Scripture, the incredible revelation is that God sits on a throne of grace. And this blows apart every category that we have. And this is such profoundly good news. And so, the message to your congregation from Job, from Hebrews, from Mark this Sunday is God sits on a throne of grace, not one of judgment, and therefore you can run. You don't have to be scared like the great and powerful Oz coming up to him. He, he sits on a throne of grace and we can, that's why he says in verse 16, let's approach with boldness. Just walk right up to it and say, I'm a sinner and my life's a mess. And because it's a throne of grace, We'll find help in our time of need. This is who God is, and this is your job as a preacher, is to tell yourself this and to tell your congregation this, that God sits on a throne of grace. So, well, moving. And, and yeah, that moves ahead. us, I mean, that's a perfect segue right into uh, March, Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 31, uh, because this is a whole, this continues the conversation of earning it. And uh, we have Jesus who uh, has set out on a journey, and uh, this guy, you know, some 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 gospels call him a rich young ruler, but it's a man, and he runs up and kneels before Jesus and asks him, "What must I do?" There's the key thing. What mm. must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, right from this question, you realize there's a flaw here, but but you know, he's asking, "How do I inherit it?" But so you have the do, and you have the inherit. And if you know anything about inheritance, and we've talked about this on the show and previous shows, but you don't, inheritances are given. That, you know, um, you know, a lot of people, the people who think that they've earned their inheritance when they don't get it, I mean, I can't tell you how many family counseling sessions I've been in where, you know, or not me, I know a priest who's been huh. in tons of family counseling sessions where, you know, somebody is really upset because they, you know, didn't get what they thought was coming to them. And then how many people all of a sudden, they may not have like loved their Aunt Sally ever, but then all of a sudden Aunt Sally left them, you know, a car. And they were mm -hmm. like, holy crap, that's the most amazing thing in the world. That That is the inheritance. You know, it's something it's that's that's given. And so this question right from the beginning is a category mistake. It's about what he's approaching it is from the same perspective as Job, from the same perspective as all of, all of us. What have I got to do to get God to give me something? And you also get a sense that Jesus, by the way, who knows everything and also knows when you're not really asking a question sincerely, um, totally calls him out on this, but in his typically subtle Jesus way. Um, because, first of all, he doesn't want the guy's flattery. He's like, don't try to earn any brownie points with me. Don't call me good. Um, no one is good but God alone, which, you know, wink, wink, we know that Jesus is God, but... 
he's more concerned about the motive. Why is this guy calling Jesus good? Is because he's on the earning train. And um, Jesus tells him all the commandments. Well, not all, but a select few. And I would say these are the ones that are like the, the easy ones. ones. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're not easy, but they're like concrete. So, Many people have not actually murdered anyone. Many people have not actually committed adultery. They have a huge crush on the barista and they would like to kill their boss, but they've not actually done either of those things. So, like, I'm good. I've not stolen anything. Um, and I'm not lied in court. So, and I, and, I, and I call my mom and dad every Sunday afternoon. So, I'm good on the commandments. So, Jesus names all these commandments knowing that the guy has done all these things. And so, gives the guy what he wants. It was a chance to say, I'm a really good guy and I've done all things. Like, basically, he, want, he wants, he wants, he wants, he runs up to Jesus, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus will say, do these things. And then the guy will say, great, I've done all them. And then he gets, you know, uh, everybody around is going to be like, yay, this guy's mate. But uh, Jesus now, in verse 21, is going to uh, kind of reveal, as we've said, the word of God is living and active and it reveals what's going on in the heart. And here, Jesus, the word will reveal that. And, says, and he reveals that he's own. an idolater. He's an idolater because yeah. he does have something that he loves more than God. Because the commandments that Jesus left out were the love the Lord your God and serve him only. Mm-hmm. Um, and don't make any graven images. Don't worship idols. Worship only God. But and it turns out this guy... The, the Lord's name in vain. Yeah. Right. Yes. So, the ones that are like we don't know how to do those things. Um, they're not as concrete. They're a little more abstract. But now Jesus shows the man that he has violated those commandments by his love of possessions and money. And so, uh, he tells him, you know, you got to sever that idolatry from your life. And I love that, uh, though. I love that he says, but he does, just isn't like, hey, man, you know, cut those things out. It's like the description from Hebrews you know, one who yeah. sympathizes with it. It's a, it literally, who sympathizes with our, with our weakness. He says, Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, you lack yep. one thing. You know what I mean? So, yep. this isn't like a, it's like, this is, man, here it is, you know, come on mm-hmm. over. Yeah. He he says it with love. He, he says it with knowledge of who he is, compassion for who he is. Like, that's looking at him like he's not just being flippant. He's really taking the time to look him in the eyes and not with judgment, but it says with love. And to say, give up this thing that is actually destroying you and turning you inward onto yourself. Mm-hmm. And um, but he, the man, loves his possessions more than anything. So he is grieving, and he and yeah. he doesn't. Do, he just walks away. Um, so and then yeah. you come to the second section of this gospel, and you know, um, uh, this this isn't you know, I, this this passage just gets gets used as a bludgeon, doesn't it, Aaron? Yeah, so people do make this only about money. It is about money, but it's only about money is that money is one of the options we are given as idols. So, it could be about almost anything that we put above God and love more than God. Um, uh, and, and And people use this, and the disciples are freaking out because they see it about money as well, how hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Again, they're in a in a moral framework where rich people must be good because they've gotten all this good stuff. So, if the rich people can't get it into heaven, the rest of us are toast too. Um, and uh, Jesus has this thing about how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God, famous passage about I have a needle and someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of God. Um, it's about money, but only to the, again, to the extent that Money is one of the many options that we have to to 
to love something more than God. And it's a really common option. It's mm-hmm. one almost everybody can relate to. Um, uh, and so, uh, he, by saying this, though, Jesus does get the, the people to the right, his disciples to the right place, which is they ask the right question, then who can be saved? Yeah. And that is exactly right. Because once they're beginning to realize it can't be about doing good stuff, um, it must be something else, and that's where Jesus says in verse 27, yes, it's impossible, but not for God, because God is the one who saves us. Yeah, and that's why, I mean, that, that's a beautiful thing about who Jesus actually is as uh, God and man, is that, um, and fully God is and fully man, um, as the representative of humankind, he gives to God what is demanded from us, which is total and complete perfection. And as God, he gives to humankind uh, what is needed to stand before a holy and just God, and that is complete and total perfection. And so, he gives those things to us um, at the same time. He is those things as God and man, and that is why, uh, for God, all things are possible, including you and I's salvation. Mm. Amen. Well, I think uh, that'll wrap it up, and now it's time to eat that second piece of naan. Oh, really quick, just, oh, but just really quick, and that is demonstrated in the fact that, um, you know, uh, the one who was totally first became last. And, uh, uh, yeah. and uh, you can take that right to Philippians chapter 2, uh, but God has raised him up. The, uh, the one who uh, went all the way to the cross... Um, but God has raised him up and given him the name that is above all names. And so, and at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, tongue confess to the glory of God the Father. Now let's have that second piece of non. For all non-kind. Somebody's looking, somebody cares. Somebody wonders what you're doing today. You know we crucified him, buried him, but... Thanks for listening to Same Old Song. Hope you found some gospel nuggets for the pulpit or for your life. If you like what you heard, leave a review or rating in Apple Podcasts. Dave Zoll will be sad if you don't. Thanks to TJ Hester for audio production. And remember to keep that Bible by your bedside, ready to rock and roll.